The epistle reading this morning is Hebrews 11, 1 through 3, and this is the sermon text. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old receive their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. This is the word of the Lord. I'd like to take a moment, if you'll indulge me. I learned something very important today, and it just dawned on me. I want to talk about faith. It's not about whether something is true or based in reality or the laws of physics or nature or even basic common sense. It's about whether we're dumb enough to believe in it that matters. Oh, folks, who am I to say that there's no God? Who am I to say that anybody's belief in church or um, God doesn't make their life better? Maybe it does. Who am I to say that he can't cure diseases with his sorcery. Maybe he can. Oh, brothers and sisters, if we believe, if we just believe that we can do anything. Oh, yeah, ladies and gentlemen, I feel it now. Are you feeling it? Are you feeling the spirit? Are you feeling the invisible things around you that don't really exist? Oh, I'm feeling it. It doesn't matter. I don't think you're feeling it. Since nobody rushed the soundboard back there to cut the mic off, hopefully you realize that those were not my words. Um, I just quoted a speech off of a, um, an episode that's a comedy, it's a comedy, very popular comedy TV series um, from a scene that takes place. It's the, they're having like a quasi kind of religious service to raise money for one of the character's moms who had been diagnosed with cancer. And so the, the whole episode is focused on kind of making fun of religious faith and, and making fun of, uh, it also makes fun of kind of science, quack science cancer cures too. And they equate religious faith and these quack science cancer cures um, so it's making fun of the idea of faith, and even though obviously I disagree with the words that I just said, I think they are kind of a, a good and humorous glimpse into what some of our secular friends think about when we say we have faith, right? What they think about faith and how they view faith. And in our culture, even when faith isn't being dissed or dismissed, when it's positive, when it's mentioned in a positive way, it's usually in kind of like a self-esteemy, individualistic motivation kind of way, like have, have faith in yourself, have faith in what you can do, so that kind of believe in yourself kind of faith. And, and that, that kind of faith was illustrated this past week um, on Twitter. There was an account that tweeted a quote by St. Augustine. Um, the quote was about faith, and it says, faith is to believe what you do not see. The reward of this faith is to see what you believe. It's a good quote, right? Um, but what kind of, you know, made this blow up was that, uh, you know, even though this would be normal, it was tweeted by Billionaire Magazine. And it was tweeted with a picture of a Bugatti, a Bugatti is, you know, big fancy sports car in front of a mansion. <laughs> 
As if that's what Augustine was talking about when he said, have faith and you'll, you'll end up seeing what you have faith in, right? If you have faith you can, in yourself, then you can make enough money to buy a Bugatti in the mansion. I can just, can't you just picture Augustine just swerving down the road in a Bugatti? I, I can, for sure, for sure. When faith isn't either being made fun of as something that's opposed to thinking, or when it's being mentioned positively as a kind of motivational thing, it's, it's gooey. It's mentioned in kind of like a gooey way by our, by our culture. It's a, word, it's a word that kind of feels good to say, right? Like live life with faith. But we don't have to define that faith very specifically or, you know, it could just mean whatever you want it to mean, right? Faith in humanity or faith in relationships or faith in kindness or just kind of a general faith that things will work out, right? If you walk into any home, I was going to say Home Depot. I, wasn't, I don't mean Home Depot. I mean, what's the, what's the craft place? Hobby Lobby. When you walk into any Hobby Lobby right now, I'll bet you a nickel that you could walk out with like 10 things to put on your wall that mention faith in some way, right? Maybe even mention this verse. Not on Sunday. That's true. All right. Tomorrow. Thanks, Vic. That was very helpful. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, in our culture, it's either made fun of or it's a motivational thing for ourselves or it's a gooey thing that can mean whatever you want it to mean, right? Form it however you want. But what is faith? The author of Hebrews has a lot to say about it. Um, we're, ta- we're introducing this, this chapter on faith today. But, but why is the author bringing that up now? That's what we're going to ask this morning, and we're going to try to find this answer um, to this passage in answering three different questions. What's faith? Why faith? And who's faith? So first, we're, we're going to look at um, what faith is. Uh, before we do that, let me pray really quick. God, uh, be with us this morning. Um, help us to really get what you're, what you're trying to give us and what we need in this passage this morning. Um, help us see with the eyes of faith. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right. Look at verse 1 with me. 11.1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So often, I, I've always, I mean, this is a very popular verse. I've always seen it, but I've been a little discomforted by it when, I, when I've seen it because I've always just had this feeling that there's, there's more than this that meets the eye because it's mentioned in a lot of places right this is a this is a memory verse it's given to kids a lot of times as a definition of of what faith is um it's also just a very it's a very poetic thing it's it's it sounds really beautiful it is beautiful um i can picture this um in 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 the guest room in my mom's guest bathroom in my mom's house there's this verse just kind of repeated all all over the shower curtain right it's a shower curtain that you know just has this verse all over it um it's a, it's a beautiful verse, but it, 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 it's actually saying it's arguing something, and, and I didn't really think I understood it. That's why I was, you know, I've been uncomfortable with it, but because I've never given it as much depth of thought as I've had to in, in thinking about this sermon. Um, and it turns out I was right. It did mean a little bit more than, than what I thought um, just on the surface. So to get into what this verse means, I think we, we really have to look back at chapter 10, what Pastor Mike preached last week. Um, because it, it kind of explains why we're even getting into this. Um, Hebrews is, is written by a guy with a pastor's heart, and it, it's really a big, it's, it's a long sermon um, given in letter form to this church that was really, they were struggling. 
They were struggling to endure. After giving some serious warnings in chapter 10 that were talked about last week, um, the, the writer says, We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but we're of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So, so faith becomes the key here. It becomes the, the key to endurance that he's calling for. And then that's what all of chapter 11 is about, faith. This is, this is how you endure. But he isn't in this verse just kind of spelling out exactly what faith is. Is this a, is this a definition of faith? Yeah, kind of. Kind of, kind of yes, kind of no. He's not giving a, a, a formal definition of faith that you would have found in the, you know, Webster's Greco-Roman Hebrew Dictionary back then, right? This says that that's not what he was trying to do. But if it's not a formal definition, what is it? One of my favorite war history stories, I don't know a lot of war history stories, I guess, but one of my favorite ones is um, of the Battle of Thermopylae. So Battle of Thermopylae, like 500 B.C., I think-ish, um, Persia was the big bad guy at the time, right? And they were led by King Xerxes, who we actually know from our Bible in the book of Esther. He's the king in the book of Esther. And um, Xerxes was trying to take over the world, as one does. Um, and all of the Greek city-states, they, they recognize that, okay, this guy is trying to take over the world. We should probably go fight him. So um, they're, they're marching thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of soldiers towards Thermopylae in hopes to meet up with tens of thousands of soldiers from Sparta, another Greek city-state. Um, but the, Spartan, the Spartans were brutal warriors. They were, you know, that they ate, they ate slept, and um, they lived for war. They lived for war. They were trained all their lives for war, and they were led by King Leonidas. The other Greek city-states kind of had a lay army made of ordinary citizens, so they were trusting in, you know, these, these brutal Spartan warriors' help. However, um, some bribed Spartan officials wouldn't let Leonidas go to war, so to get around this, Leonidas um, marched to battle himself with 300 bodyguards. It's kind of his, you know, his loophole. And I love one of the cinematic portrayals of, of when you know, these tens of thousands of Greek soldiers, they, they met with the Spartans along the way, and they were disappointed, right? They were like, we thought, we thought you, were, you were sending all of your soldiers. Why did you bring so few soldiers? Leonidas, in this portrayal, looked at the general of the, you know, these Greek city-state armies, and he said, is that right? You there, he said to one of the Greek soldiers. What is your profession? Well, I'm a potter, sir. Potter. You there, Arcadian, what's your profession? I'm a sculptor, sir. Sculptor. All right. You. Another Greek soldier says, well, I'm a blacksmith. And King Leonidas turns around to his 300 soldiers and he says, Spartans, what is your profession? And then in unison, all 300 soldiers give a violent, blood-curdling cry, oh, 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 shoving their spears in the air. King Leonidas looks at the Greek general and he says, you see, old friend? brought more soldiers than you did. Is Leonidas primarily giving this Greek general a definition of what a soldier is? Is he pulling out a dictionary and saying, well, soldier's actually this, so I actually, you know. No, he's not doing that. 
It's clear within his response that he has a different definition of a soldier than the Greeks did, but he wants to give more than a definition. He wants to give a rallying cry to the effect of, this is what a soldier is. This is what a soldier should be. Take heart. We've got this. He's aiming at the heart. He wants to light a fire under them rather than just giving them a head knowledge dictionary definition. That's what the author of Hebrews is doing here with the meaning of faith. He's not speaking academically to the head, but to the heart, to light a fire under the Hebrew souls to recognize and grasp what exactly this faith that they have is. To spark them to endurance, to keep going. This is a pastoral, loving word on faith to move the Hebrew souls to recognize and grasp, grasp faith for the powerful thing that it is. And within that, is he making a, you know, an argument about what faith is? Yeah, he is. But it's more practical and invitational than it is definitional, right? A full definition would include Paul's use of the word faith um, as, as a gift given by God to believers to enable them to receive salvation from God, right? Um, the Heidelberg Catechism, we're going to have a, a Sunday school class on the Heidelberg, Heidelberg Catechism, and I think starting in two weeks, um, the Heidelberg Catechism says, true faith is not only a sure knowledge by which I hold as true all that God has revealed to us in Scripture, it is also a wholehearted trust by which the Holy Spirit creates in me by the gospel that God has freely granted, not only to others, but also to me, forgiveness of sins, eternal righteousness, and salvation. It's beautiful, right? Uh, the, the, the Westminster Catechism also speaks of it as, as receiving and, and resting in God's promises and Jesus' salvation of us. So Paul is saying... Here's what faith is. Here's what faith is as a salvation-bringing gift. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, yes, that's beautiful, that's true. And here's what it is for us right now. What does it do for us? It's kind of like, you know, a gift given and opened and received and rejoiced in on Christmas on December 25th. And then on December 26th, you actually, you know, you take it out, you put it together, you read the instructions, you figure out how to use it, right? You figure out what it is. So the writer of Hebrews is specifically asking, okay, what does this do for us when our possessions are plundered, like it said in chapter 10? What does it do for us whose faith, like in our confession of sin this morning, is, is feeble and faltering? What does it do for us when we're tempted to walk away? What does it mean for us when we're in spiritual danger of drifting away from the love of God? So all that to say, what is it? What does it mean? What's the truth that Hebrews wants to light a fire under us with? Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So almost everything here rests on the words assurance and conviction. Now, if you're reading the, the NIV or the ESV, which is what we're using, that's what you have in the pew in front of you, um, those are the words used, but if you've, you've heard others, has anybody heard substance or evidence before? Anybody heard that? Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. The KJV, the KJV and other translations like the CSB use those words. And, you know, we can trust that, I mean, the, the translation in your Bible is good, it's it's, um, you know, these are saying very similar things. They're two sides of the same coin. But it does matter what side of the coin we're looking at to figure out, like, what, okay, what is this verse actually saying? On one side of the coin is a, a subjective translation, right? Assurance and conviction are what you do, right? That's subjective. And the other side of the coin is objective. Substance and evidence are what it is. 
And I'm actually going to argue these words should be translated objectively because I think it fits better with the words themselves and with the context of these three verses and with the context of the chapter in general. The word for substance literally means setting under, the foundation beneath your feet. Many times it was used to mean the very reality or the nature of something, like in Hebrews 1.3 where it says Jesus is the exact imprint of God's substance, his nature. Sometimes uh, this word carries the connotation of, of tangible reality, actual reality, objective reality versus just the mere appearance of reality, and that's a theme that the writer of Hebrews has used a lot throughout the book, if you'll remember that from other, other sermons we've had, that um, the, the writer of Hebrews is saying, you're trying to go back to these things that aren't even real. They were given to you as a, as a symbol, as a sign, as a pointer to the actual reality, the actual heavenly realities that you're trying to walk away from. Stay here. Stay with the real. Pursue reality. So all this leads some to even translate this word here as objective reality. Faith is our connection to real, objective truth. Likewise, with the word conviction in your Bibles, that's a subjective translation of the word that usually means evidence or proof. So it's saying that faith is the actual hard evidence, the demonstration of future things that we hope for. So taken all together, what does that mean? What does that mean? The 4th century church father Chrysostom put it like this. Faith gives reality to the objects of hope, which seem to be unreal, or rather does not give them reality, but is their very essence. Another modern scholar puts it like this. Faith celebrates now the reality of future blessings, which make up the objective or actual content of Christian hope. Faith gives to the objects of hope the full force of present realities, and it enables the person of faith to employ full certainty that in future these realities will be experienced. Faith has the ability to unveil the future so that the solid reality of events as yet unseen can be appreciated by believers. If that doesn't make sense on the face of it, we're going to walk through what that means um, the rest of our time today. Faith is a celebration of God's promises, the reality of the truth of the gospel and the world to come. Faith is a, it's a substantial sample. It's a taste. It's a down payment of the promises to come. It's our real heavenly con- connection to heavenly reality. It's not just our subjective, one-sided grasp of the truth. It's a full participation in God's truth. It's not just our... It, it, it gives us an objective foundation for our subjective faith and hope. It's not a vague feeling. It's not a warm sensation in your belly. It's not a bet that we hedge on the future. Might happen, might not. Is there a subjective element to faith? And is that super, super important? Yes, of course there is. Of course there is. Is there a subjective element of faith that we can be, you know, feeble and faltering and, and, you know, drop the ball all the time, go up and down and all over with our faith? Of course. But ultimately, our faith is supernaturally given, is a supernaturally given substance that unites us with God and is evidence of his promises. And that's the reason for the author's hope that if they are of those who have faith, they won't shrink back. This is, this is back in chapter 10, I think, verse 38. They won't shrink back, but they'll be of those who preserve their souls because they have faith. He's reminding them of their objective reality. Their foundation of space of faith to light a spark under them, to grasp grasp 
that objective reality subjectively. You have the very substance of the promises of God. That's how real this is to you. So grab it, grasp it, realize that. Take it up, act on it, base your life on it. If this is real, if you get the reality of the gospel, act on the confident trust that that brings. Ho, ho, ho. That's what he's trying to do. He's trying to spark them up, light them up with that. That's what faith is. That's what the author, that's why the author is even talking about this. And I don't know about you, but I need that, right? My, my head is always ahead of my heart. My heart is always running behind my library. The difference between, the, the, the space between my head and my heart is always so long. I don't know, I don't just need a theological definition of what faith is. I need to feel a taste of its power. I need its reality in my heart so that I can act out of bold trust in God's promises. So let me pivot for a second and skip to verse 3. Because verse 1 is talking about what faith is, and then verse 3 is an example of that. It's kind of the first one in a long list that we see in Hebrews 11 of examples of faith. Verse 3, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen is not made out of things that are visible. So this gives us an introduction to the rest of the chapter, which first of all goes from Genesis to the end of the Old Testament, or at least the end of the historical books. Um, so it makes sense that this is starting with Genesis 1, right, in the beginning. And it follows the same kind of formula as the rest of the chapter. By faith, X, X person did Y action, acting on the reality of God's promises. By faith, we understand, this verse is saying, that there's more to matter than matter. Now, if you're listening to this and, and you're not sure if the faith that we're talking about this morning is something that you actually have, or if you know it's not something that you actually have, and you kind of agreed with what I was saying at the beginning about the silliness of, of faith, I think there's something here that you should actually maybe think about a little bit. And I'm, getting, I'm riffing a, a lot off of here um, from Tim Keller and Leslie Newbegin, so go read Smarter People if what I, I'm about to argue doesn't satisfy you. But faith is so often said to be opposed to reason, Right? Opposed to thinking. Oh, don't, you, don't, you don't have to think about that. Just have faith. Right? But notice what this verse says. By faith, we understand. So faith, the faith we're talking about, thinks. It thinks. It's not just opposed to thinking. It's not just, oh, they can kind of live together, you know, like roommates who don't really like each other. But, you know, they can, they can you know, stay together if they keep their own spaces. No, it's saying this is a faith that requires thinking. This is a natural result of what I just argued. If faith is only subjective, if there's only subjective, if there's no two sides of the coin, just one side of the coin, faith is only subjective, sure, take things on faith. Who really cares? Just like my opening, opening speech, right? But if faith is substance, if faith is evidence, it has to accord with reality. It must be reasonable. It must allow us the ability to stand on it as a foundation and think. The verse in the other part of the Bible isn't walk by faith, not by reason. What is it? Walk by faith, not by sight. If anything, it's our culture that doesn't reason enough, that doesn't think enough. Um... 
this, was a, this is about a 40-year-old quote, but it, I think it resonates more today than it did back then even probably. Um, Norman Cousins, the 20th century American journalist, pointed, pointed this idea out saying, our own age is not likely to be distinguished in history for the large numbers of people who insist on finding the time to think. Plainly, this is not the age of the meditative man. It's a sprinting, squinting, shoving age. Almost daily, new antidotes for contemplation spring into being and leap out from store counters. That was before the iPhone. Modern man may or may not be obsolete, but he is certainly wired for sound, and he twitches as naturally as he breathes. We love tech, right? We love the hard sciences. We love seeing a lot and thinking a little. We love sight in our world. We love efficiency. We love STEM, right? Science, technology, whatever the E is. Engineering. Sorry, Dave. Math. We love the scientific method. We love looking at things and figuring them out, figuring out how they work. And Christians love those, right? We should love those. Historically, Christians were the ones championing those and making advances in those fields, right? But we don't pretend that our sight, we don't pretend that our sight solves all of our need to think. Eyesight can't answer the hard questions of, well, why am I here? Who am I really? What does it mean to be a human? How should I live? You need reason to answer those, and that reason must come from some sort of a foundation, some sort of a worldview, and we as Christians simply hold that faith is the best way to do that. It's the best place from which to think about um, the world that gives more explanatory power towards thinking about the universe than anything scientism or modernism has given us. Faith thinks. By faith, we understand. If you're sitting there and you do believe, if you do have faith, but reading this kind of has you down. Like, man, I, I don't see that. It says assurance and conviction. I don't see that in my life. Like, I know what you're saying, but this isn't really feeling all that real and tangible to me. And even if it is, the subjective part of my faith looks so far removed from the objective part that I don't even know what to do with this. And I'm, I'm with you, too, because I think that's part of why I was uncomfortable with this verse. Assurance and Conviction, that's, that's what faith is? If that's what faith is, I don't know if, I, I don't know if I'm there. Let's look at verse 2 and we'll, we'll fill this thing out. The writer of Hebrews thinks you also need to see that real substance and evidence has been grasped. It, it's, it's, it's been taken up by real people in reality right here in front of us. And that's where he goes in verse 2. Whose faith? For by it the people of old received their commendation. This is really also an introduction to the rest of the chapter, which follows that same formula. Again, by faith, blank did blank and received commendation from the Lord, which means that you know, the Lord acknowledged them as people who are of faith, right? Not people who shrink back. The Lord acknowledged them um, positively as people who, who have faith um, and endured. It's saying that this is what pleases God. Faith pleases God. In, in verse 38 in chapter 10, it says, The Lord takes no pleasure in those who shrink back. How do you please God? Faith. Faith is what pleases God. And I think this list gives an example of the truth that the author is pointing out about faith. 
Just look through, if you want to flip through in your Bibles there in, in um, Hebrews 11, just, just look through that a, a little bit for a second. Anybody know what this chapter has been called or labeled? Anybody heard that? The Hall of Faith. The Hall of Faith. Are there any baseball fans here? Any baseball fans? I'm, I, I'm a little bit. I mean, I like the Reds, but baseball is boring, so, you know. Um, the Hall of Fame, the Baseball Hall of Fame was in the news this week. Not for who it included or recently nominated to be in the Hall of Fame, but for who it didn't include. Players who hold all the records in baseball, but, you know, the Hall won't let them in because of character issues. Mostly, you know, doping accusations, right? And I always grew up, I grew up in Cincinnati, I always grew up with calls for Pete Rose to be in the Hall of Fame, but they won't let him in either because of of gambling issues. If the Hall of Faith was anything like the Hall of Fame... This might have ended up as one of the shortest chapters in the Bible. (laughs) If character issues like that kept people out of this list, it would look either a lot different or a lot slimmer. Let me put this another way. If faith is subjective, it's just subjective, only one side of the coin, just subjective, if it's all about how trusting of God you can be in the moment by yourself with no other foundation or substance other than your ability to have faith, none of this Hebrews 11 would have happened because these are all, what did it say in our confession today? Like feeble and fickle. These were wishy-washy, broken, jacked up people. Just going down that list, Noah disgraced himself. Abraham didn't have enough faith to claim Sarah's wife when he got scared. Sarah didn't have enough faith to keep from giving her maidservant to Abraham to have the baby that God promised to her. Isaac displays the same faithlessness as his dad did. Jacob can't stop tricking people out of faithless fear. Samson isn't faithful enough to stop from getting his hair cut. Barak fearfully doubted God. David's faith floundered into becoming an apathetic, murdering, adultering, right? And I don't even know what to do with Jephthah, right? By themselves, these were not people of strong faith, left to themselves, If the only tie to the heavenly reality of God's promise is our own subjective faith, we're in trouble, folks. And yet, and yet, they were not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who by faith inherit the promise, preserve their souls, and were living demonstrations of God keeping his promises. Because of the substance, because of the objective reality of faith, they were of those who live their lives in light of that heavenly reality. Even when their, their physical eyes were looking at a present earthly reality that not only didn't, just didn't kind of, you know, accord with that, it looked like the opposite. The bad guys were winning, and yet they believed. Crooked sticks draw straight lines only when the hand holding them does so. In a world ruled by sin and death and Satan, They bore witness to a kingdom where sin, death, and Satan hold no power or presence, where God reigns and where their faith can can give a glimmer, a glimpse, a real connection to those promises right now in the present. Hebrews is saying, I know, I know your faith isn't strong. I know you're feeble and fickle. That's why I'm writing this about faith. I know that. In college, I, I studied theology and, and ethics for, for a semester abroad at the University of Oxford. 
I kind of burned myself out and, you know, killed myself, you know, hypothetically, to, to get there. And so w- when I got there, I was really feeling the weight of that exhaustion, and I was going through a lot of changes, and there were pers- particular sins and struggles for me there. And, um, and there were also some things that I believed that, you know, my, my grades and my studies would be easier if I denied some pretty important things that I held to um, about my Christian faith. This wasn't like a, a huge, crazy crisis moment of faith for me, but I would say that my faith was pushed and pulled there in a number of ways. And every day I had to walk down the street past a statue, um, probably at least twice a day. And from far away, the statue looks like a, a, a church steeple, um, actually like some students that um, have gone there and have seen tourists, you know, looking at the steeple. Tourists would sometimes ask the students, you know, what this, what this statue is, and they'd say it's a steeple of an underground church. And so the, the students would lead the tourist, you know, to this underground church down a set of stairs, and it'd just be toilets down there. Um, it's actually called, the statue is actually called the Martyr's Memorial, and it's built very close to the spot where three men were burned at the stake in the 1500s for holding that salvation is by faith alone in the Reformation. Two of these men, Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer, were burned first. And the third, Thomas Cranmer, was forced to watch because he had a high position in the church. So they wanted him to watch this, see this, have his faith falter, and then recant his belief in salvation by faith alone because it'd be a big blow to to the church. And, And he did. He watched his friends burn, and his faith faltered. It wavered. And so he recanted again and again. He wrote all these recantations of his faith in the gospel of faith. Before he was was to be burned, um, he was going to make one last big recantation in front of the whole city, one last chance to save himself. But instead of the speech that he gave to the British authorities, he took back all of his recantations. He affirmed that salvation is by faith alone, and they dragged him out, and they threw him on the stake, and they burned him in the same place where his two friends were just before that. And he famously took his unworthy hand, as he called it, the hand that had written all of the recantations of his faith, and he says, I'm putting this one in the fire first for denying the Savior. This chapter, Cranmer, weren't people of unwavering faith, unwavering subjective faith. The Bible this chapter, it's not, it's not written to people of perfect, solid faith. If you wake up every day and you fully believe God's promises and your faith never looks like a Richter scale during an earthquake and, and, and you never have doubts, you never have crisis moments, you never have periods in your life where you just feel numb to everything spiritual, if that's you, I'm sorry, this chapter wasn't written for you. It's written for those of us whose faith is feeble sometimes and frail sometimes and wavering sometimes. It's written to sinners and sufferers. But when we realize the reality of faith, the substance and the evidence that the ground of the faith gifted to us brings us, we can come back and we can subjectively act on it, living in the full assurance that this really is God's world, 
despite all that our physical eyes see. Living in the bold conviction that God's promises are so tangible that we can taste and celebrate and participate in them, not just tomorrow, but today. When Latimer and, and Ridley were, born, were burned, um, the Latimer, who is a, you know, he's an old guy at this point, he's an old Christian at this point, he turned to Ridley and he said, Play the man, Master Ridley. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. And by faith, they did light a candle on that stake that was never burned out. And the reason that I could even be walking there, you know, without being burned 500 years later in the same faith was because they paved the way for men like Wesley and like C.S. Lewis and like George Whitfield, who lived the faith and paved the way. Every day I walk by a memorial of that spot where they went to the stake, as the plaque says, rejoicing to them, that to them it was given not only to believe, to have faith in Christ, but also to suffer for his sake. Walking by that gave me a sense of the reality of the faith that's been passed down, the reality, the substance of the faith, and what that gives to the promise of God, the connection that that gives to the promise of God. And that's exactly the reason why the writer of Hebrews included this list. Not as a, you know, look at all these people who by themselves had this steady and unwavering faith. Find it in yourself to be as faithful as these people. No. Look at all these people who have left to themselves, if left to their subjective faith, were just as wavering, as unsteady as you feel right now. And yet, we're not of those who shrink back and were destroyed. We're not of those who gave it up. We're not of those who just ended it, right? But we're of those who held on. Not because they wavered less. Not because they could try harder or do better or hold on longer. But because God was holding on to them. Not because they could, with the strength of their own hands, hold on to the promise of God, but because of the strength of God and his promises, the promises were holding on to them in reality. Because the substance and the demonstration of God's promise was theirs in the faith that had been gifted to them. You're kind of supposed to have applications and sermons. Um, but this, what we're reading today is, is a sermon, and at least in, this, in these three verses, and I think even in the whole chapter, there's not really an imperative given here. There's not a do this. His whole point is, you've, you've got this faith. You've got it. Look at it. Grasp it. Have it. There's, a tons, there, there's tons of applications that can be given here, right? Live in light of the promises. Be bold. Stop fearing. Take risks. Be adventurous. Sacrifice. But our first call is to just have our eyes open. Not the eyes that look out and see everything wrong with the world, that merely see, you know, our present city that looks nothing like the city of God. But with the eyes of faith that see the heavenly realities as real and the promises as something that we can celebrate and participate in now as we seek the city that is to come. Let's pray. God, our, our, our faith, our own subjective part of the faith is feeble and, and, and 
flickering and, and frail and it, 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 it goes up and down based on what day it is, how we woke up in the morning, what's going on in our lives. We acknowledge that. We acknowledge that we don't often take our subjective faith and, and, and lean into the objective faith, the substance, the reality that you've given to us, God. But I pray that you'd remind us this morning. Remind us of the gospel. Remind us that Jesus gave us something that won't just shrink back and be destroyed, but will help us to endure, to keep going. Help us to keep going, God. Remind us of that this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen.